this episode of Dig Me Out. Well, first off, I'll say, once again, I nailed it. But they're definitely trying to write big, hooky pop songs. They almost sound like they're demos that are intended for other artists to record. Because in a lot of these songs, you get to the chorus, and there's just there's no chorus there. Hot shocker. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Dig Me Out. I am your host, Tim Minichi. Joining me once again, my co-host, Mr. Jay Ziak. Jay, are you yes. are you drinking anything this evening? Yes. And that would Cate. be? Huh? Tecate. I have a Negro Modella. Wow. Yeah. Somebody's ready for vacation. Somebody is very ready for vacation. That's not going to make any sense because we'll... By the time this comes out, we'll have already gone on vacation. So I'm sure it was a great vacation. Wow, that was an awesome vacation. There'll be a lot of avoiding the avoiding the heat and, uh, and the sun by me. Yeah, it's funny that we both end up going to a place where we just try to avoid the most <laughs> positive aspect of the place, which is the sunshine. Yeah, yeah it's kind of weird. I guess we should start planning vacations. Yeah, maybe, I don't know, like Warsaw or... Um, uh, oh, I would love to Dank. go to Scandinavia. I'll go to, like, I'd go to North Dakota. <laughs> what the hell is there to do in North Dakota? Exactly. Just, no, I, I mean, know. you got to go over someplace, I mean, you know. Somewhere nice and crisp and cool. Someplace in Russia. You know, Why? Or Austria. Because it's cold there. Yeah, there's, there's coldness there and overcast skies. I was in Austria like. for about. I was in Austria for about an hour and a half. Were you flying over it, or did you have to do a layover? No, we did a layover. I just remember there were a lot of trees, lots and lots of trees. Like flying in and out, all you see is trees everywhere. You don't see anything else. Well, that's so, what they that like call Austria the land of trees. So, is that what Austria stands for? No. In English, <laughs> I don't know. I just know that um, they're in known. Spanish for, Austria means trees. Yeah, they they're known for their desserts. That's all I know. So we should probably get to tonight's review. We're actually doing a listener suggestion. This one was uh, brought to us by Scott Colvin, who suggested it over Twitter. His, do I say handle? Is it like having a CB radio? Your Twitter handle? Yep. Uh, is SneezeGuard, if you, if you want to follow Scott. And he also runs a blog called Your Forgotten Favorite at yourforgottenfavorite.blogspot.com and he suggested that we review the Catherine albums, which of, there are two. Uh, he also shot us a nice, uh, today is the day that the quick, quicksand episode went up, and he shot us a, uh, a little retweet today and said that this quicksand was one of his favorite bands of the 90s. So we are glad to be able to uh, uh, review that album, because that was a fun one. I think Chip said the similar thing, right? On yeah. Facebook. Uh, a lot of people like Quicksand. Yep. That was a band, uh, you know, not a lot of people know of them, but the people who don't know of them love them. 
so that's always a fun band because it brings people out of the woodwork talking about how much they love the band Tour Driver was like that too yeah so I have actually a little bit of history with Catherine their first album um, which is uh, Sorry I actually reviewed that for the radio station back in the uh, days in college that was one of my first albums that I reviewed along with the Zimpano record that we've already covered so I never got to review this particular album uh, when it came out. So, and I actually don't really, I wasn't really familiar with it, so it was, it was interesting to go back and listen to this one. Um, so how about, uh, I'll start out with the history and then we'll get into the reviews of Scott's suggestion. Tell me more. Catherine formed in Chicago, Illinois in 1985. Originally it was just a two-piece with a drum machine. Neil Jenden and Jerome Brown uh, started recording. They released a 7-inch on Limited Potential, was the name of the record label. They added drummer Kerry Brown, no relation to Jerome, and guitarist Mark Rue, and recorded an EP called Sleep in 1993, which one Billy Corgan produced. The band then signed to TVT Records, the infamous TVT Records, and released Sorry in 1994. They toured with the Pumpkins. And around that time, uh, drummer Kerry Brown married bassist Darcy Retsky of Smashing Pumpkins. They also toured with Hole, Suede, Dig, Letters to Cleo, and they had a minor uh, college radio hit with, I believe, the song Saint off the first record. In 96, the original founding members, Neil Jenden and Jerome Brown, both left the band, leaving Mark Rue and Carrie Brown to become the primary uh, singers and songwriters for the second album, which was released in September of that year. They also uh, they added a couple new members, including former Urge Overkill bassist, Scott Evers, who was the bassist before Blackie Onassis, he, went, he moved from bass to guitar. In 97, the band toured with Garbage and then Lemonheads in the U.S. and played some festivals in Europe. They returned to the studio, but the label wouldn't return their phone calls, and the band did some recording and then broke up. And that's pretty much it. Not a lot of history for this band. So... Hot Saki and Bedtime Stories. Jay, let me, start off, let me start off with this question. Okay. Of all the reviews that I've read, not just for this album, but for this band, all of them mention, both positively and negatively, how much they sound like Smashing Pumpkins. Was that on your mind when you reviewed this record, and what did you think of it? Yes, it was. Um, but, well, first off, I'll say, once again, I nailed it. <laughs> my, my biggest criticism, criticism of this album is it sounds like two guys and a drum machine. Um, you're, according to the history, they had a, they had an actual human drummer, correct? Yeah, they did for this record. Yeah. And it sounds like there's somewhat of a performance on this album, but it it really has that feel of it, it sounds like demos. 
Um, it sounds like, you know, the demo recordings of a pretty a pretty good album. That's um, really funny because I wrote down a lot of songs sound like rough mixes of demos. Yeah. And I know they're not demos because there's a lot of production effort in it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's a lot of extra instruments and a lot of extra percussion. Part of the extra percussion makes me wonder if they did something funny with how they recorded drums. I mean, part of them sound like real drums. Part of it sound like layered in drum machine stuff. I mean, there's obviously... It's obviously produced and created by guys who are used to using a four-track and, you know, kind of doing a two-man band thing, uh, recording. And I think that's... Sometimes that works out really well, but I think in the case of this album, it's the biggest detriment. Um, there's also just a... It just sounds muffled and kind of muddy in spots mm-hmm. where it can be really crisp. And with the amount of, of uh, instruments that are on this and the production that is intended to be done... Uh, it should sound better than it does, and it, it's really hard to get into it because uh, because of that. Uh, in terms of the pumpkins thing, uh, I think I don't know. I guess when we got got the suggestion, it was mentioned that they were similar to the pumpkins, or that Billy Corgan had a piece in at one point. Uh, I think I heard that heard the pumpkins most in a lot of the slower, less interesting stuff. Right. Um, it's it's kind of weird. It's like, it's almost like they're doing um, the, uh, like the the crappy parts of melancholy, and all of the slow, boring crap that the pumpkins did after that. They're doing that stuff. Um, it's all you know, that kind of whiny, nasally voice um, that that Billy Corgan has. Um, which over a rock song sounds awesome, but over a lot of slower songs is really just whiny and boring. Um, unfortunately, the you know from a rock standpoint, I don't I don't think when they when this band rocks out that they sound much like the Pumpkins at all. Um, Did you get any like? Here's here's what I was hearing. Um, the the single for this album was Four Leaf Clover, which is easily the best song I think on the record. I heard a lot of Dandy Warhols. Yeah, that was a yeah, band, was, huh? Yeah, that was a. a I, I was trying to think of a good band to represent that sound. That's that's a really good. That's a really good uh, one to mention. they have an element of i mean even on that song he almost i don't know if it says a joke or 
if he's actually affecting a British accent, but he almost goes into a British accent for a couple lines. And, I mean, there's a cool boy-girl vocal thing going on there, but the, the style of it is very 90s, Dandy Warhol, evoking that, um, you know, 60s pop nugget sound. Um, you hear it on a, a number of the songs. The other band that they sort of reminded me of in their more rocking uh, moments was Space Hog. Oh, um, I didn't just hear that. Huh? I didn't hear that. Just because of the, there was some of it that sounded almost um, glammy. Uh, yeah. Specifically, um, well, it's kind of ironic, uh, Vegas Glam, track six. It, it had elements of some of the Space Hog stuff. Well, you know what that is? I mean, that song is a T-Rex. That's them trying to do T-Rex. That's probably where it comes from, then. Yeah, it comes out as Space Hog, but even if you listen to the way the percussion's done on that, you know, T-Rex had this very unconventional way of, like, orchestrating percussion and drums. Right. They even, they even take that approach with uh, with that song. that the, the Pumpkins influence comes across like you said in a lot of the slower stuff but uh, track one Whisper when the guitars kick in and you get mm -hmm. that like really thick wall of uh, of guitar that's where a lot of the first record from what I remember um, got comparisons to the Pumpkins because yeah. you hear that you know just blaring wall of guitar it's very, uh, it, there's not a lot of like distortion in the sense that there's, there's not a lot of high-end distortion. It's all mid-range mid distortion. It's just thick and, and the only thing that bothered me about it was, and this goes back to the what we were talking about with the demos, the mix is weird on that song. Yeah. Because it's, the, the verses are actually really loud, but when the electric guitar kicks in, it actually, the volume drops. And when you yeah. to get like really big and loud, it actually decreases in volume in half, and it loses some of its punch when they do that.
yeah, the guitars have absolutely no impact because they sound like they're being played in the room next to you. Yeah. The other like, song uh, that uh, reminded me of the other aspect of the Pumpkins is track 13, Pink Floyd Poster, which is the yeah. longest song on the album. It's like six minutes. Mm-hmm. And for the first three minutes, it's just sort of meandering. I don't know what's going on. And then it kicks into the second half of the song, and you the get, Pink Floyd impression. You get a you get a big like Pumpkins freakout jam, where there's you know it's like the end it's like uh, Geek USA and all those like you know Pumpkin songs where you'll have like three or four minutes at the end of the song of just Corgan soloing and riffing and stuff like that and trading licks with James Eha, and which is fine if that if. I think the problem with this record, why I couldn't get into it fully, because there are some really good songs on here, is that it's too long, for one thing. There are 14 songs. If this had been a 10-song album, and that had been track 10, I would have liked this album a lot. Yeah. But you could easily kick out four of these songs and put them as B-sides or you know a separate EP or whatever, and this well, would be a lot stronger album. I would even say, if you got it down to 10 or 9, I would even say those 10 or 9 would, would almost sound like two different bands. I think if you kept, you could keep segre- segregating the songs a little bit and you got kind of two different bands that, that's uh, left in, in the material there. Um, I think some of the stuff is them trying to do kind of a new glam thing. Like I have, I wrote down a track two, to me sounded like Imperial Drag. Which is, I don't know if you remember that band, but. I kind of do, and I, I totally know what you're saying with that, yeah. mix in the you know the uh, Moog synth and they tried to do like a and there were a couple bands around this time trying to do you know revive some some glam um aspect um or or try to bring the genre back more of a a 60s 70s kind of way Mm -hmm. um and track two reminded me a lot of them uh there's a couple other songs where um you know they're trying to write pop songs they're trying to write kind of fun you know uh, like the one song that sounds like T-Rex there's another song Cotton Candy Ride which is just you know ridiculous lyrics and them trying to just I think have fun but then there's some other things that sound like more more melancholy like indie or, or alternative rock you know typical alternative rock I have like track 8 which was one of my favorites Make Me Smile um, it could have been you could have given that song to Bush, 
you know, and they probably could have played it, and it would have been a totally convincing Bush song. You could give um, track nine, Blacklight, to the Afghan Whigs, and Greg Dooley, if he sang that, it would sound exactly like an Afghan Whig song. The problem that I had with Blacklight, though, is, and it, you know, knowing what I know about the history now, that this was the first time that these two guys had been the, both the primary songwriters and singers, that sounds like a song that somebody wrote that they didn't really have a lot of experience, because it's, it's line, space, line, space, line, space. It is, it's that sort of, like, generic phrasing that everybody starts out with when they're songwriting and there's hardly any melody going on in those verses I just I found it like it, the, there's an interesting guitar lead in the chorus and that pretty much carries the chorus but yeah overall well, this song is pretty like boring I found oh absolutely yeah I mean but I'm saying that it'd be like a you know a deep track on a on Black Love or something or yeah, uh, you know, and it and it be about you know that that kind of crying guitar lead in the chorus, and um, you know the kind of just barely on keys, you know, ballad vocal that you know that I could hear Greg Dooley doing. And but, but my point being, you could go through a lot of these songs, and they're almost they almost sound like they're demos that are intended for other artists to record. So even when you strip it down to the bare, you know, best material, even with what's left there, doesn't sound like a cohesive band. It sounds like a bunch of, um, you know, different ideas and different, um, different paths. I mean, it's all brought together with kind of a muddy, pillow muffled production. But um, I don't know. I mean, I think there's some. There's some talent here. I think it's, it could be from a songwriting standpoint. You know, what's been interesting is this is another one of the, I think there's been a couple albums where we were, we, we've reviewed where, you know, the verses are a lot stronger than the choruses in most cases. Um, a song like Don't Touch Me There, I think the verses are actually really good. That's a weird song. And the, and the chorus is horrible. Yes. I have a drink in one hand, a crumpled twenty
they get to that chorus and you're like, you gotta be kidding me. Like, I, I, I really like bought into the song. I thought it was going to be great. And you get to that chorus and it's just like, you know, it sounds like 16 year old kids writing their first song. And, uh, you know, there's, there's quite a few songs like that where at least the intro of the song, um, and, and the first verse are, are pretty compelling. And then you get to a chorus and it totally throws you. Yeah. Um, and if you played four leaf clover for somebody, they'd probably be like, wow, I really want to check this band out. And then you listen to the rest of the album and you're like, there's not another song that sounds like that. Like, where's the woman who was singing on that song? She, I think there's, she's on part of one other song, and that's it. But yeah. that, that's an idea that they should have been exploring. I know that we, when we did the Wanda Dies album, we were both like, that really elevated those choruses and made them much more melodic and much more hooky when you added that female vocal. And when you did that on Four Leaf Clover, it totally elevated that song. If you put that same you know, uh, male-female dynamic on some of the poppier songs, or had her sing on even some of the more mellow stuff, it might have added a little bit of weight to those songs, whereas they just kind of sound like, especially the slower ones, sound like just typical, dull, slow, mid-90s alt-rock, and there's not a whole lot really intriguing about them. Yeah, I would agree. Um, well, I think we've pretty much beaten this one into the ground. <laughs> uh, I mean, I... Part of me wonders if it was just mixed better. Yeah. If I would, if it would be a lot more compelling. Um, I mean, this, this is probably by far the worst produced album that we've reviewed so far. I mean, we've gotten you know we get overcritical about all of them because you know that's what the show's about. But this one is it's pretty rough. Um, I, it's hard. What what label does this come out on? EBT, the home okay. of. Um... Oh, you know, Nine Inch Nails at the beginning of their career. They had a fight over their, you know, record uh, contract. And I think Guided by Voices was on there for one record. And they were just one of those, like, not big enough to be a major, but small enough to be an indie kind of labels. And there was always some sort of controversy with them, whether or not they were, you know, supporting the artists completely or paying them completely or I don't even think they're around anymore. They might be, for all I know. But Yeah, and some and some of those bands, I mean, it sounds like some of the aesthetic is to, you know, have the four track sound, but this isn't even the four track sound in a in a charming, you know, fun way. No, it's... they're definitely trying to write big, hooky pop songs. Yeah. But yeah. they needed a they needed an editor and a producer and a, a producer that could say, no, this is your hook right here. This is what you guys need to be, you know, focusing on because a lot of these songs, you get to the chorus and there's just, there's no chorus there. Mm-hmm. There's a really interesting verse or there's some interesting lead or there's a cool drum beat. Um, even in, um, uh, what, what song was it? Uh, in trunk song seven, punch me out. Yep. Got some interesting drum stuff going on, and then <laughs> you know what though? What before I for, before I forget this? That that's one of the songs where there's probably two two or three songs on this album where they use that weird like 311 porno for pyros drum sound, like the snare drum. It it just sounds ridiculous. Oh, it's like, like a piccolo. Yeah, and it's not even it's even higher than a piccolo. I mean, it sounds like somebody's like hitting a bottle or something. Yeah. It's, 
horrible. I mean, it's like, it's one of the few spots where you're like, okay, there's actually a drummer playing here, but you're like, God. <laughs> well, the thing that I liked about that song was when you get to the bridge, it almost turns into like a Beatles psychedelic pop song. You know, they bring in like an organ and it's playing like this um, two note, you know, I don't know what to call it because I'm not that good of enough of a musician to be able to pick it out. But if you listen to it, and I'll say we're probably going to play it when I'm talking about it now. But if you, when you hear it, you'll be like, oh yeah, that's totally like off of, you know, Sgt. Pepper's or uh, Magical Mystery Tour where they got the idea for that bridge. There are elements of really cool stuff going on in a lot of these songs, but they just, they didn't have them all there. And it's probably the result of, you know, some guys who had not really been the primary songwriters and they threw their ideas out there that they had. And there, I don't, there appeared to be no, you know, uh, major producer working with them to be able to say, you know, this is, this is what you need to be focusing on. So the song's kind of suffer. Yes. Essentially, they did a, a bedroom, and we're, we are just completely guessing here, but they did a bedroom four-track album and sent it to TVT or whatever, and they were like, yeah, we'll put it out. Yeah. Which Here in the 90s go. you could do. Yeah. Yeah. So, as far as why this band wasn't bigger, I think it's probably just the songs aren't 100% there. I mean, they had their chances. They toured with a lot of people. They had connections to the right people in terms of being married to the bass player Smashing Pumpkins when they were at their height. Yeah, no kidding. What do you think this band sounded like live? That's a good question. I imagine on that the first record, they were probably a little more straightforward of a rock band. But on this one, they're kind of more all over the place. So they could have been a mess. I don't know. I'd be interested. It's hard to tell because the album doesn't sound like, I don't know, I, I like albums where I at least get the sense that the band's in the room playing together. And I just don't get that sense from this album. It just sounds like it's all separate. So I can't even imagine, you know, when these guys play, play live, how that would even come together. It's just, I don't know, it's weird. I'll have to do something. Um, I, I think... I think there was some potential here from a songwriting perspective. Uh, I, you know, I um, I can't help but think that the production is, is is tripping both of us up because even some of the choruses, like they get to them and you're like, okay, I kind of get where they're going here. But not only a production standpoint, but from a performance standpoint, the guy can't put together the vocal no. to deliver the line. You know, so you got like, you know, try to layer it with two or three voices and it just gets even worse because they're all off key. 
So it's the kind of thing where like some of these songs I could kind of imagine if they were given to bands that were talented, that they would actually be pretty good songs and work for those bands. But or if they went back and really treated this album as demo, they re-recorded them and took the time to get everything right and on key and everything, and you know, got some help from a good producer that it would really elevate these songs quite a bit. But I guess we'll never know. No. I will have up on our website the video for Four Leaf Clover. They did make a video for that song. Uh, I believe it's up at uh, Scott Colvin's website, which is yourforgottenfavorite.blogspot.com. Thanks to Scott for suggesting this to us. I hope we didn't rain on it too much. Like I said, I think that there's a really strong 10-song album if this was remixed. You've got you've got the makings of something really cool, um, but at 14 songs and the mix now it's just it's hard to listen to in a lot of spots. I think you sort of agree that a lot of what's holding it back is just the unevenness of from song to song and yeah, it, like it literally would pull me in and I'd be like, oh that's interesting, that's pretty cool, and I would start listening and. They would just lose it. They would go to a chorus, or the song would change, and it would go into this meandering, sort of slow, melan- him trying to do like a melancholy, somber thing, and it just, just didn't work. And there'd be two or three songs like that, and then all of a sudden it would come back and grab me again, and I would just fade in and out of this album. So, Agreed. Once again, too long. Yeah. Oh, 90s artists, will you never learn... Edit your albums down. All right. Well, that's it for Catherine's Hot Saki and Bedtime Stories. We'll be back next week with another episode of Dig Me Out. Visit digmeoutpodcast.com for links to our Facebook page and Twitter feed.